The Great Bible Reset is a podcast devoted to counteracting the great economic reset of Klaus Schwab using Bible lessons and theory. Thank you to boomers-alive.com for sponsoring this podcast and the Kingsway Classical Academy. This week, we are continuing our study on the great books of Western civilization and their effect on our current economical and spiritual crisis. And now your host, Oliver Woods. Welcome, everybody, once again to thegreatbibloreset.com, emphasizing the fact that the one and only thing that will deliver America as a nation from the judgment of God is a return to the original intent of the law of God, not the original intent of the U.S. Constitution, but the original intent of the law of God. This is Oliver Woods, and last week we learned that following the patriotic era of Charlemagne and Alfred the Great, and actually running parallel with it uh, during the early Middle Ages, we have the Papal Revolution of 1075 to 1122, which included uh, representative characters St. Anselm, John of Salisbury, and Thomas Aquinas as our three representative P's in this particular historical pod or era. Now, these three people, these three men, followed each other with just a few years separating each of their lifespans in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. This was the prelude to the great renaissance, or rebirth of classical culture, after a millennium or so, a millennium of so-called darkness during the Christian era. Anselm said, I believe, in order that I may understand. Now, this was the supposed opposite of Aquinas, whose credo was, I understand, in order that I may believe. But in actuality, Anselm was not all that different from Aquinas. Today we seem to be totally hamstrung by this idea of separation of church and state. If you try to mention anything serious about religion in the public sphere, especially Christianity, you just tiptoed outside the Overton window of acceptable discourse, and you'll be chastised. Tut, 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 uh, let's not be mixing church and state now. So where did this unwritten rule come from? Well, it started with the great conflict of the medieval period, Who will appoint the bishops, the emperor or the pope? And why is this important? Well, the church got off on the wrong foot at the time of Constantine in its inheritance of property. This violated the law of Moses that forbade the tribe of Levi from receiving any inheritance by lot in the promised land after the conquest. Under the biblical doctrine of church and state, the two institutions are separate in function but united in leading the culture into obedience to God. But for the first 1,000 years, we find them squabbling over money because of disobedience to that one simple command. You know, who's going to collect the rent? So finally, Pope Hildebrand, or Pope Gregory um, VII, insisted that church leaders appoint the bishops, and he excommunicated Henry IV, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, who resisted. Now, this was a big deal because uh, excommunication meant not just Henry, but the entire nation of Germany. Uh, And that meant no uh, church services, no uh, marriages, no funerals, and in the minds of many, uh, no salvation. So Henry finally had to uh, go to Canossa, where the Pope was staying. And um, there's a phrase called going to Canossa in in humility. And uh, he he, uh, stood on the... uh, at the doorstep for three days in the bitter cold winter weather, bareheaded and barefooted, uh, begging the Pope's forgiveness. Finally, 
the Pope relented. He had, you know, he he was he had to, you know, he forgave him. But in the process, he squandered a golden opportunity. You know, what if, you know, instead of saying, hey, Henry, how can we be Moses and Aaron by leading the culture into obedience to God? You know, you be Moses, I'll be Aaron, and and let's work together on this. But instead, they had 50 years of warfare from um, about 1075 to 1122. Now, when I was writing my book, Keys to the Classics, A History of the Decline and Fall of Western Civilization, which turned out to be a 20-year project, I gathered, first I started out, I gathered several lists on the internet of what is known as the classical canon. And I picked out from each of those three or four lists uh, the common ones. And I ended up with a list of 50 that were common to all. And I figured, well, this must be the classical canon. So I went about the task of analyzing these 50 in light of the Bible and converting them into a curriculum for the online classical Christian school I was creating at kingswayclassicalacademy.com. Now, the funny thing was I kept bumping into other important writers in addition to my list of 50 in the process of this analysis and writing project. So I ended up expanding my list of, of, um, to 100, you know, added another 50, <coughs> excuse me, and proceeded um, to analyze these um, biblically also. Now, the, this classical canon has had a great impact on Western civilization, for better or for worse. And sad to say, in most cases, it's been worse because these authors tend to replace the Bible with so-called natural law. Now, these, these, um, these, these writers are and were the superheroes of academia and of popular culture. We might call them super influencers. Now, the classical Christian school movement tends to idolize the classics, almost on a par with the Bible. And this has been true throughout the history of, uh, of Western civilization. For example, even the good guys like John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, treats the Christian life as an obstacle course to be endured rather than a battlefield to be conquered. And this was because of Bunyan's experience in the first phase of the English uh, Civil Wars in the latter, uh, well, in the, um, the first half of the, six, of the um, 1600s. Now, at the same time, Bunyan was driving Christians into privatized piety in the mid-1600s, the British Commonwealth men were providing a secularized alternative to fill the vacuum uh, at the same time. Uh, Men like James Harrington, um, uh, John Milton, John Locke killed the great Bible reset of the Puritan Revolution. And this impacted um, the the American Constitution uh, uh, somewhat later. Now, plus, Cromwell never replaced the faculty of Cambridge or Oxford, it was business at use. It was business as usual at the colleges, at the universities. But then we have the more obvious uh, bad guys, like Plutarch's Lives. Uh, Plutarch, uh, you may recall, uh, I think he had twenty-four pairs of uh, famous Greeks and famous Romans. For example, Alexander the Great uh, compared with uh, Julius Caesar, and so this this uh, was sugar-coated humanism swallowed with gusto by the Massachusetts Puritans in about 1650 uh, at the time of their log cabin college, which turned into Harvard. John Harvard was the founder. So that was the foot in the door that culminated with the faculty at Harvard going, sick, uh, going secular uh, in 1805, 
uh, 100, 150 years later. It took that long to, to work itself out, but it finally worked itself out. I'm, I'm kind of digressing here, but this is this points to the fact that uh, these are some of the implications of the, of the, the teaching of John of John of Salisbury in in subsequent history. So, what was going on in history that paved the way for John of Salisbury and his impact on history? Well. For one thing, the First Crusade was launched in 1095, resulting in the death of many European nobles. The Roman Empire had split politically way back with the sons of Theodosius, Honorius and Arcadia, Honorius in the west, Arcadia in the east. But the church split didn't come until the 11th century over this, this issue of what we call Caesaropapism. It also involved um, iconography, the worship of images, and the Philoke Clause during the Great Schism uh, in 1054, where the two churches split. The Eastern Church did not follow Hildebrand, Hildebrand in his struggle against the emperor. So there was just a whole lot of turmoil didn't, uh, during this, um, this period. Then came the Justinian Code. Now we have to go back in history to the origins of the Justinian Code which was a simplification and abridgment of all the law that accumulated in Rome over the period of, uh, of over a thousand years, 1,500 years actually. Uh, now initially, a committee of 10 men called the Decembers was established in 451 BC to summarize the Roman law for the first time. The work they produced in 449 BC was known as the Ten Tablets documented the centuries-old customary laws of Rome and became the foundation of Roman law. Now, that, does that sound suspiciously similar to something we find in the Bible, the Ten Tablets? Indeed it does. Uh, now, since this law was centuries-old at the time of codification, we assume that it derived in part from the early Italian contact with King Solomon of Israel, who reigned from 971 to 931 B.C., Remember how all the nations came together and sat at the feet of Solomon during the time of his obedience and um, supremacy to learn of his wisdom? And we detect remnants of that biblical civil law in these ancient ten tablets of Rome, especially, um, for example, the equivalence principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which has to do with equal justice under the law for the plebeians in Rome. Uh, Equal inheritance, equal inheritance rights of women, and a debtor being sold to pay off a debt, environmental concerns for a neighbor's property. All these things are found in biblical law. Um, again, it's obvious that these ten tablets, ten tablets, memorized by Roman schoolboys for centuries, were a derivation and, in many points, a corruption of the Hebrew Ten Commandments. The, histor the historian Livy um, apparently makes no direct reference to this, but the correspondence is unmistakable. Some of the, corrupt, the corruptions include the option of death for a debtor, which is definitely not biblical law. And then this is a quote, a dreadfully deformed child shall be killed, according to uh, the Ten Tablets, uh, which obviously is referring to abortion, not a biblical law. Death for fraud, death for fraud, rather than double restitution. Okay, but Justinian threw, out, threw it out. Um, the part that was most that was somewhat in compliance with biblical law, Justinian threw it out. According to Gibbon, the Twelve Tables and Praetorian Edict insensibly vanished, and the text was abandoned as useless, 
though venerable relic of, of antiquity. After a thousand years, over a thousand years, overwhelmed by the urge to consolidate and economize, um, they threw it out. Thus, this obvious, though imperfect, replication of the Ten Commandments was discarded by the Aseus Tribonian, whom uh, Justinian had selected to lead the consolidated consolidation effort in 529 AD. So the big lesson there is Christians should not appoint atheists to overhaul their law codes. Don't do that if you ever get the opportunity, because you, you may not get another opportunity for a thousand years. Yet, when the Justinian Code was recovered in an Italian library in about 1080, it had been lost for, for 500 years, uh, recovered in about 1080, gathering dust in a library in Bologna, it was revered as sacred and subject to Aristotelian logic, um, debated and glossed by the schoolmen and their students in the universities um, after the, um, the example of Aquinas. So no great biblical reset, simply rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic based on fallen human reason, rationalism, and natural law. So John of Salisbury was the first to articulate this new relationship of church and state in his Polycraticus, uh, meaning statesman's book, uh, which was published in 1159. In the civil realm, meantime, Henry II, who reigned from 1154 to 1189, had launched the Plantagenet line of kings that lasted for 330 years. Uh, I think there were 14 uh, kings in that line. And he and Thomas Becket were at each other's throat. They started out as friends, but en ended up as bitter enemies culminating in the martyrdom of Becket. In spite of that, Henry II became the father of the common law or the royal law, which is a combination of ancient folk law, custom, and courtroom precedent with very little biblical law. So we're going to continue with more specifics on John of Salisbury tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, you can pick up our book if you like at the bookstore at kingswayclassicalacademy.com. Visit our longevity store at uh, boomersalive.com for some incredible uh, buy one, get two, uh, buy one, get three deals on your vitamins. In the meantime, we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more episodes, visit greatbiblereset.com. And to help support the podcast and Kingsway Classical Academy, visit our sponsor at boomers-alive.com. To learn how to get your high school diploma and bachelor's degree on the same day, visit kingswayclassicalacademy.com and save up to $100,000 on college tuition.